Welcome to the Babble Room, the podcast where we babble on about the things that fascinate us and hopefully fascinate you too. Hi guys, welcome back to the Babble Room. As usual, I'm joined with my wonderful co-host, Miss Amélie. Hey guys. How are you today? I am doing wonderful. It's sunny outside. I'm excited for spring. How are you doing? I am happy to see the sun. It's been raining and snowing for a few days, like you said. Uh, Very excited for spring. Don't know when this episode will come out. Might be in the middle of June, but right now, we still have snow. Yeah, it's true, because we are recording early, guys. (laughs) We're recording in advance when we can. Yeah, we have impossible schedules, so. So we're doing our best with what we have. Also, if you happen to hear a cat purring, uh, you're not crazy. My cat has made his way into the office and requires attention. So he's (laughs) usually pretty quiet, but if you hear a purr or a meow, that's why. It's so cute. Wish you could see it. (laughs) If you subscribe to our Patreon and our behind the scenes, you'll be able... You can see them, yeah. (laughs) You'll be able to see the cat. Um, Right, okay, so let's get into the episode today. We have a really fun one. So the episode is titled The Dancing Spy. As we've kind of alluded in past episodes, um, I mean, he takes care of our social media, so she knows in advance what the topics are about. So I can't really ask her if she knows anything about the topic (laughs) or if she knows what the topic is, because she knows because of the social media. I can try to guess it if you want. Please do. (laughs) <laughs> so the title of, actually say it? so the title of the episode today is the dancing spy so do you know who the dancing spy is yes i know who the dancing spy is because i asked you this week for <laughs> social media right so today we'll be talking about matahari 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 yeah i should have i should have looked up how to pronounce this before we started recording, but you know what? We're I did not. I was just like, you know that Eurovision song? Yes. We'll come back to this that. This is why I pronounce it that way. We'll come back to that. Um, okay. So, you know, we're talking about Matahari. <laughs> what do you know about her? Um, I know that she was like a, a belly dancer, kind of. Mm-hmm. She was, she looked very exotic, mm-hmm. but she was Dutch, was she? She was Dutch, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so I know basics. I know she used to seduce. M- Men to gather information for her country. <laughs> that is what her public story is. Yes. Oh, okay. I see. So you have more information. I do have more information. And you know, we might be debunking a myth today. Who knows? Ooh, okay. Interesting. Right. So I'm going to preface this by saying once again, I do not speak Dutch. I cannot pronounce the Dutch words. There are a lot of Dutch words. So please excuse my pronunciation right away, because if you don't, this is going to be a rough episode for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right. So let's dive in. Margaretha Gertruda Zella. Yes, I know. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. She was born on the 7th of August, 1876. That is a mouthful. So I will refer to her either as Margaret or Matahari, depending on where we are in her life. Right now, she is Margaret, not that whole mouthful. Margaret. Okay. Okay. Right. So she was born on the 7th of August, 1876 in Leuwarden, Netherlands. So she is Dutch. 
Right. She was the eldest of four children, born to Adam Zell and his first wife, Antje van der Mulen. I think that's how you pronounce it. You know what? I like. I always wonder why you you take com- like really complicated names to pronounce. Like every podcast you do, you're just like, oh my god, you have to pronounce these like these sentences. Because I'm trying. I'm, like, I'm trying to branch out from just like the Canadian American kind of niche, but uh, no, that does make sense. It's just like I see you struggling every time, and it's it's very entertaining. Yes, I have to say. Oh, there'll there'll be more. Trust me, you'll have more. Okay. Right. So Margaret's father owned a hat shop and made investments in the oil industry, and he became affluent enough to give Margaret and her three brothers a lavish early childhood that that included exclusive schools until the age of 13. However, soon after, Margaret's father went bankrupt in 1889, and her parents divorced. This was followed by her mother's death in 1891. Okay. Her father remarried in February 1893 to Susanna Katerina Tenhuvi. And the family f- quickly fell apart, and Margaret was sent to live with her godfather, Mr. Weiser, in Sneek. And Sneek is a town. It is spelled S-N-E-E-K. Sneek. Sneek. <laughs> so subsequently to her moving there, she studied to be a, a kindergarten teacher in Leiden, but when the headmaster began to flirt with her conspicuously, she was removed oh. from the institution by her godfather, which, not her fault, not her decision, but obviously they removed her from the situation and not the man that was bringing unwanted advances yeah. towards her. Just yeah, evil woman. Yeah, so a few months later, <laughs> uh, unhappy in her current situation, she fled her uncle's home in The Hague. At age 18... Margaret answered an advertisement in a Dutch newspaper placed by Dutch colonial army captain Rudolf MacLeod, who was living in what was then the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia, and he was looking for a wife. How convenient. That's not nice. So, (laughs) Margaret married MacLeod in Amsterdam on the 11th of July, 1895. The marriage enabled Margaret to move into the Dutch upper class and placed her finances on a sound footing, because remember, her dad was went bankrupt during her childhood. Mm-hmm. She moved with her husband to Malang, on the east side of the island of Java, traveling out on the SS Princess Amalia in May 1897. They had two children, Norman John MacLeod and Louise Jean MacLeod. Okay. The marriage was overall a disappointment. <laughs> What? Why is that so? Because Rudolph was an alcoholic and he physically abused Margaret, who he blamed for his lack of promotion. So overall, a fucking asshole. Okay. Right. Doesn't end there, though. He also openly kept a concubine, which was a socially accepted practice in the Dutch East Indies at the time. Margaret abandoned him temporarily, moving in with another Dutch officer where she studied Indonesian culture intensely for several months, and she joined a local dance company during that time. In a correspondence to her relatives in the Netherlands in 1897, she revealed her artistic name of Matahari, the word for sun in the local Malay language. The literal translation of Matahari is eye of the day. Oh, that's so pretty. It is beautiful. Um, At her husband's urging, Margaret returned to him, but his behavior did not change. So it's okay for him to be, like I said before, a complete fucking asshole, but for her stepping out and trying to be in a safer environment, that didn't work. 
So she sought escape from her circumstances by studying the local culture. In 1899, their children fell violently ill from complications relating to the treatment of syphilis contracted from their parents. Hmm. Okay. However, the family claimed that they were poisoned by an irate servant. Jean survived, Hmm. but Norman died. There are some sources that maintain that one of Rudolph's enemies may have poisoned their supper to kill both of the children, but that's not uh, proven. Okay. So after moving back to the Netherlands, the couple officially separated on the 30th of August, 1902, with the divorce becoming final in 1906. Margaret, now Matahari, was awarded custody Mm -hmm. of her daughter, Jean. Rudolph was legally required to pay child support, which he never did. But one. Of course not. No. <laughs> of course not. That would be out of character for him. <laughs> right? Yes. What a dick. Mm-hmm. However, we're going to turn the tables a bit here. Mm-hmm. When Jean visited Rudolph, one of the times she visited him, uh, he decided not to return her to her mother. So he just, he just kept her. What? Yeah. And unfortunately, because Margaret didn't have the resources to fight the situation, because her husband was the one with the money, uh... Unfortunately, she had to accept the situation, and it's thought that she believed that while Rudolph had been an abusive husband, he'd always been a good father, so that she wouldn't be in a horrible situation. Once again, we we don't really know what we could do in that situation. She was probably acting out of desperation. Whatever the case was, unfortunately, Jean died at the age of 21, possibly from complications related to syphilis. Oh, okay. Oh, that's so, so sad. So far, that's so young. the young life, very tragic so far. Yeah. In 1903, Matahari moved to Paris, where she performed as a circus horse rider using the name Lady McLeod, much to the disapproval of her husband's family. Mm-hmm. However, she was still struggling to earn a living, so she also posed as an artist's model, which at this time meant posing nude. Yeah. I got that. I was just like, I know that. I'm an artist. I know that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) By 1904, Matahari began to rise to prominence as an exotic dancer. So you got that part right. Right. She was promiscuous, flirtatious, and openly flaunting her body. Matahari Mm -hmm. captivated her audiences and was an overnight success from the debut of her act at the Musée Guimet on the 13th of March, 1905. She became the long-term mistress of millionaire Lyon industrialist Émile Etienne Guimet, who had founded the museum. Here's where it gets oh. interesting. She posed as a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu birth, pretending to have been immersed in the art of sacred Indian dance since childhood. Okay. Which is where her okay. kind of That's mysticism appropriation here. comes. Yeah, so she created this character, which... Obviously, it was exotic. It was the early 1900s. People didn't have access to Mm -hmm. travel like we do today. So it was like, oh, my God, something different. I guess it was okay at the time. (laughs) I mean, I don't think they'd heard of cultural appropriation back then. No, probably not in those days. No. But But today, that is definitely what that would be. Mm -hmm. So during this time, she was photographed numerous times, uh, either nude or nearly nude. And some of these pictures were obtained by the McClouds, so her husband's family. Okay. And this strengthened his case in keeping the custody of his daughter. Because she was a, quote, mm. unfit mother. Okay, so 
his daughter, well, their, their daughter. daughter was not 21 at the time. Well, she no, was so what, while they were going through the custody battle, this is an argument that her husband's family used against her. Okay, okay. It was not like she was doing that, like, as he. Yeah, so when they moved back to Europe, she moved. So he, quote unquote, kidnapped their daughter. He didn't bring her back. So she moved from the Netherlands to Paris and started this career. And because it was seen as a bit unsavory and something that an appropriate mother would not do, they used this to say, like, well, why would we give the child back when she is flaunting her body and not respecting societal norms. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Okay. Makes sense. So one of the things that Matahari uh, was innovative with is that she brought a carefree, provocative style to the stage in her act, which is why she was so popular. Her act was successful because it elevated erotic dance to a more respectable status and so broke new ground mm. in a style of entertainment for which Paris would later become world famous. We've all heard of the Moulin Rouge. Yes. So this is kind of... We all did. Yeah. So this is kind of in that vein. Yeah. Exactly what it would remind me mm-hmm. of. I was just like, I was thinking about She's that. not quite a can-can dancer. But no, no, no. But she, like, it was in those mm-hmm. days when... You can, you know, a good way to kind of compare it to now is she was probably one of the first burlesque dancers. Yeah. So her style and free-willed attitude made her a very popular woman as did her eagerness to perform an exotic and revealing clothing. So Mm -hmm. she posed, once again, for more provocative photos. And this all elevated her status, and she started mingling in very wealthy circles. Mm -hmm. So one evidently enthusiastic French journalist wrote in a Paris newspaper that Matahari was, quote, so feline, extremely feminine, Majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms, end quote. Ooh. So, uh, he had it bad. He had it bad. Yeah, that's very poetic. Mm-hmm. One yeah. journalist in Vienna wrote after seeing one of her performances that Matahari was, quote, slender and tall with the flexible grace of a wild animal with blue-black hair, and that her face makes a strange foreign impression, end quote. So you can see a bit of the difference. They're both really acclaiming her and like, she's amazing, blah, blah, blah. But you can see, I mean, the French are the French, right? You can't. Yeah. It, I <laughs> love them. It's great. So yeah, so that's kind of. Way more romantic. Yeah, more romantic. <laughs> Way more, more romantic approach. Passionate. <laughs> By about 1910, a myriad of imitators had risen because of her act. Critics began to write that the success and dazzling features of the popular Matahari were due to cheap exhibitionism and lacked artistic merit. Although she continued to schedule mm-hmm. important social events throughout Europe, she was held in disdain by serious cultural institutions as a dancer who did not know how to dance. So because she wasn't classically trained, that meant she couldn't she could just couldn't do it according to the masters. Okay. Yeah. And Matahari's career went into decline after 1912, unfortunately. On the 13th of March, 1915, she performed in what would be the last show of her career. However, by this time, she'd become a successful courtesan, known more for her sensuality and eroticism than for her beauty. That's, it sounds right to me. This led to her having relationships with high-ranking military officers, politicians, and others in influential positions 
in many different countries. Her relationships and liaisons with powerful men frequently took her across international borders. Now, we need to remember that this is the beginning of World War I. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very good situation to be in. Like, just picturing her, like, having many daddies and just, like, flying, like, everywhere around Europe. And I was just like, oh, nice. Like, good for her. (laughs) That's what... Yeah, it was just, like, good for her. Prior to World War I, she was generally viewed as an artist and free-spirited bohemian. But as the war approached, she began to be seen as a wanton and promiscuous woman and perhaps a dangerous seductress. Scandalous. Uh-oh. Scandalous. But this kind of sets the stage for where the myth of Matahari comes from. Because she is known as being a spy during World War I. But oh, why? why? Do tell. So do- <laughs> I will. That's why I'm here. Okay. Uh, during World War I, the Netherlands remained neutral. As a Dutch subject, Matahari was thus able to cross national borders freely. To avoid the battlefields, she traveled between France and the Netherlands via Spain and Britain, and her movements inevitably attracted attention. During the war, Matahari was involved in what was described as a very intense romantic sexual relationship with Captain Vadim Maslov, Vadim Maslov, a 23-year-old Russian pilot serving with the French, who she called the love of her life. I'm going to ignore your laughter because we've already gone through <laughs> Russian pronunciation last time. It's just because of what you said. Captain. Captain. Because I knew the Russian words were coming and I didn't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> you hesitated on his rank. You were just a captain. Because Vadim Maslov. Vadim Maslov? <laughs> See? Yes. Y- yay for words I can't pronounce. All right, so she was completely in love with this <laughs> Russian officer. <laughs> and then what? In the summer of 1916. Uh-oh. I see mm-hmm. your face. Maslov was shot down and badly wounded <gasps> during a dogfight no! with the Germans. But Dean, mm-hmm. no! He lost the sight in his oh. left eye, which led Matahari to ask for permission to visit her wounded lover at the hospital where he was staying near the front. And as we mm-hmm. said... As a citizen of a neutral country, she would not normally be allowed near the front, but she had connections in higher spaces, so she was allowed to go. She was met okay. by agents of the Deuxième Bureau, who told her that she would be allowed to see Maslov if she agreed to spy for France. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Here's the condition. Mm-hmm. So you can go see the love of your mm-hmm. life, who was injured in the war, but... You gotta bring us back something good that we can use. Okay. Okay, mm-hmm. I see. Before the war, Matahari had performed several times before the Crown Prince Wilhelm, elder son of Kaiser Wilhelm II, and nominally a senior German general on the Western Front. The Deuxième Bureau believed she might be able to obtain information by seducing the Crown Prince for military secrets. Scandalous. Scandalous. However, they were unaware that the German (laughs) crown prince didn't have anything to do with the running of the German army. Oh. Oh, shit. Yeah, so he never commanded a unit larger than a regiment. And apparently, in name, he was now supposedly commanding an army and an army group at the same time. So, 
that didn't put Matahari in a great position. But the Jizimbiru offered her a million francs if she could seduce him and provide France with intelligence about the German plans. He's <laughs> like, okay. I'll try. Where's the money? I'll, I'll try. Do <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> Give me the money. I'll do it. Matahari's contact with the Deuxième Bureau, who was France's spy unit, was Captain Georges Ladoux, who is important and will come back later in the story. Okay. In late 1960, Matahari traveled to Madrid, where she met with the German military attaché, Major Arnold Kahl, and asked if he could arrange a meeting with the crown prince. During this period, she apparently offered to share French secrets with the Germans in exchange for money. Okay. Playing a bit of a double game here. Uh, she's Yeah, she's hustling. I mean, respect, girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's unclear if this was because she was greedy, which is another issue entirely, or if this was an attempt to set up a meeting with the crown prince to kind of get the ball rolling, to make him more serious and to make him take her seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. In January 1917, Major Calais, Cal, the German that she was meeting, okay. the German attaché, mm-hmm. Absol- absolutely, yes. transmitted yes, radio yes. messages to Berlin describing the helpful activities of a German spy code named H21, whose biography so closely matched Matahari's that it was very obvious that Agent H21 could only be her. Okay. The Deuxième Bureau, France's spy unit, intercepted mm-hmm. the messages, and from the information they contained, they identified H21 as Matahari. The messages were in a code that German intelligence knew had already been broken by the French, which suggested that the messages were done on purpose to have Matahari arrested by the French. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. They threw her under the bus. Okay. That's not even the beginning of it. Mm-mm. General Walter Nikolai, the chief intelligence officer of the German army, had grown very annoyed that Matahari had provided him with no intelligence worthy of the name and instead selling the Germans mere Paris gossip about the sex lives of French politicians and generals, basically Ooh. decided to terminate her employment by exposing her as a German spy to the French, which he could have called her. Yeah. In December 1916, the Deuxième Bureau let Matahari obtain the name of six Belgian agents. Five were suspected of submitting fake material and working for the Germans, while the sixth Mm -hmm. was suspected of being a double agent for Germany and France. Two weeks after Matahari had left Paris for the trip to Madrid, the double agent was executed by the Germans, while the five others continued their operations. This development served as proof to the Deuxième Bureau that the names of the six spies had been communicated by Matahari to the Germans. Oh. On the 13th of February, 1917, Matahari was arrested in her room at the Hôtel Elysée Palace on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. She was put on trial 20, on the 24th of July, accused of spying for Germany, and consequently causing the deaths of at least 50,000 soldiers. Although the French and the British intelligence suspected her of spying for Germany, neither could produce definite evidence against her. This is important. Okay. So Matahari's principal interrogator who grilled her relentlessly, was Captain Pierre Bouchardon, and he was later to prosecute her at her trial. 
Bouchardon was mm. able to establish that much of Matahari's persona was invented and that she was not a Javanese princess, but actually Dutch. Right. This was used as evidence of her dubious and dishonest character at her trial. Oh, okay. That makes... Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it played against her. Yeah. Oh, that's, that so really this, sucks. What elevated her and made her not be on the streets after a very messy divorce. Also, yeah, also caused her downfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. That really sucks. Mm-hmm. So Mada Hari admitted to Bouchalon that she had accepted 20,000 francs from a German diplomat and a former lover as reimbursements mm-hmm. for belongings taken from her by German authorities. Bouchardon claimed that this was, in fact, payment for her spying for Germany. In the meantime, okay. cool. Ladoux, the general we had talked about previously, who was her contact, yeah. had been preparing a case against his former agent by casting all of her activities in the worst possible light, going so far as to engage in evidence tampering. Okay. So this brings us to the question of what is true and what was not true during her trial because they mm-hmm. they needed a scapegoat right was the issue in July 1917 a new government under Georges Clemenceau had come into power utterly committed to winning the war in this context having one german spy on whom everything that went wrong with the war so far could be blamed was the most convenient for the french government making matahari the perfect scapegoat Mm-hmm. This explains why the case against her received maximum publicity in the French press and led to her importance in the war being greatly exaggerated. The Canadian historian Wesley Work stated in a 2014 interview that Matahari was never an important spy and just made a scapegoat for French military failures, which she had nothing to do with, stating, quote, they needed a scapegoat and she was a notable target for scapegoating, end quote. Likewise, the British historian Julie Wheelwright stated, quote, she really did not pass on anything that you couldn't find in the local newspapers in Spain, end quote. Hmm. Wheelwright went on to describe Matahari as, quote, an independent woman, a divorcee, a citizen of a neutral country, a courtesan, and a dancer, which made her a perfect scapegoat for the French, who were then losing the war. Right. She was kind of held up as an example of what might happen if your morals were too loose, end quote. <gasps> so this wasn't about oh, her spying right. at all. Oh, my God. All of this for morals. Mm-hmm. Huh. It's about to get sad. Oh, no. Well, I know it was going there, but mm-hmm. I was just like, I was not, like, I'm still not ready for that mm-hmm. part. Matahari wrote several letters to the Dutch ambassador in Paris claiming her innocence. She wrote, mm-hmm. quote, my international connections are due of my work as a dancer, nothing else, because I really did not spy. It is terrible that I cannot defend myself. End quote. The most mm-hmm. terrible and heartbreaking moment for Matahari during the trial occurred when her lover, Maslov, by now a deeply embittered man as a result of losing his eyes in combat, declined to testify for her, telling <gasps> her he did not care if she was convicted or not. Oh my god. She described this man as the love of her life. Oh my gosh. And it was reported that she fainted when she learned that Maslov had abandoned her. Oh, no. Oh, you know what? I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting that. Yeah. That is freaking sad. It's really sad. And unfortunately, she, like, all the odds were stacked against her because, like I said previously, they used the 
argument that she was a loose woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, the prosecutor is quoted as saying, without scruples, accustomed to making use of men, she's the type of woman who is born to be a spy. End quote. They have no evidence of this. Mm -hmm. None at all. Unfortunately, this is the image that we have of her today. She's been portrayed as a femme fatale, the dangerous, seductive woman who uses her sexuality to effortlessly manipulate men. Although I have to say that says more about men than us, but hey. (laughs) But others view her differently. In the words of the American historians Norman Pulmer and Thomas Allen, she was, quote, naive and easily duped and a victim of men rather than a victimizer. Right. Absolutely. She maintained throughout her entire trial that she'd never been a German spy. She strongly and passionately insisted that her sympathies were with the Allies and declared her passionate love of France her adopted homeland. Oh. This did not sway the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Matahari was executed by a firing squad of 12 French soldiers just before dawn on the 15th of October, 1917. She was 41. According to an eyewitness... She was not bound and refused a blindfold, and she defiantly blew a kiss to the firing squad. Oh, wow. She went out with a bang. Mm-hmm. Part of the pun. Yeah, part of the pun, yeah. <laughs> British reporter Henry Wales recorded her death, saying that after the volley of shots rang out, quote, slowly, inertly, she settled to her knees, her head up always, and without the slightest change of expression on her face. For the fraction of a second, it seemed she tottered there, on her knees, gazing directly at those who had taken her life. Mm-hmm. And she fell backward, bending at the waist, with her legs doubled beneath her. End quote. A non-commissioned officer then walked up to her body, pulled out his revolver, and shot her in the head to make sure she was dead. Oof. The violence. The violence of this. Matahari's body was not claimed by any family members and was accordingly used for medical study. Her head was embalmed and kept in the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. Oh, wow. I didn't even know this was a thing. No, interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In 2000, archivists discovered that it had disappeared, possibly as early as 1954, according to curator Roger Sabin, during the museum's relocation. So it got, quote, lost in the move, which I'm sure we can all relate to. Yeah. Yeah. To this day, her head remains missing. Mm-hmm. Records dated from 1918 show that the museum also received the rest of her body, but none of the remains could later be accounted for. Okay. Are you ready to get really mad? Oh, no. Because this wasn't enough. What are you going to tell me? In October 2001, documents released from the archives of MI5, which are the British spies, were used by a Dutch group the Matahari Foundation, to ask mm-hmm. the French government to exonerate Matahari as they argued that the MI5, MI5 files proved that she was not guilty of the charges she was convicted of. Mm-hmm. The spokesman from the foundation argued that most of her spying was low-level, and she provided no secrets to either side, stating, quote, We believe that there are sufficient doubts concerning the dossier of information that was used to convict her to warrant reopening the case. Maybe she wasn't entirely innocent, but it seems clear that she wasn't the master spy whose information sent thousands of soldiers to their death, as has been claimed. End quote. Her sealed trial and other related documents, a total of 1,275 pages, were declassified by the French army in 2017, 100 years after her execution. And although those files have not been analyzed completely, it is thought that she was used as a scapegoat and was not 
guilty of the crimes that she was accused of. Mm-hmm. So, not to end, we don't want to end on a sad note. No, we, we don't. We don't. Because my blood is boiling right now. So yes. please, let's end this. <laughs> so we'll talk about her legacy a little bit. Right. Because she is kind of the original idea of the exotic dancer working yes. as a double agent mm-hmm. using her powers of seduction. And if you've seen any James Bond movie, yeah. any spying movie, you know that this is a trope that is used over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So she's the archetype of the femme fatale. Right. Her life inspired a number of films and at least five stage musicals. Mm-hmm. In the 1964 novel Harriet the Spy, Matahari is idolized by 11-year-old Harriet, who is a spy herself. In February 2016, the Dutch National Ballet premiered a two-act ballet entitled Matahari. Mm-hmm. And we cannot forget the 2021 hit song Matahari performed by Azerbaijan yes. in the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes, Eurovision 2021. Yes. A freaking bop. I love it. And was the inspiration for this episode. Yay! That's so nice. I love that. Yeah. How do you feel after all of this? After learning all of this? Um, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm quite sad about, like, because I, I didn't know it was that tragic. Like, I know, like, I mm-hmm. thought she was just, like, doing her stuff like you know dancing and mm-hmm. seducing um important people officers and stuff and she was just like doing her spying thing and like mm-hmm. but i was not expecting her to be the scapegoat of of an entire operation yeah exactly for world war one yeah yeah and see what i learned during this so i knew i knew that she was a spy mm-hmm. I kind of had the same kind of stereotypes that you did. Yeah. What I didn't realize when doing my research is that she was arrested after her first mission. Yeah. Like it wasn't, she wasn't going on about for years, mm-hmm. but they saw the opportunity when her lover was injured, jumped on it and already at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. They, they like, took the opportunity to just, they. Exactly. They and it's almost her. like. It almost feels like they set her up from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Like, with the intention of doing this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which makes my blood boil. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. Same. I feel, you know what? Like, sometimes, like, we, I, like, I feel like we women mm-hmm. have so much rage inside of us <laughs> and so much anger about stuff. And we just don't, sometimes we don't know. It's just, like, it, it's it's random. Like, it could it could hit you, like, randomly mm-hmm. in the day. And you're just like, oh, my God, I feel for my sisters. And you just don't know why. Mm-hmm. This is one of the many reasons why. Because so many mm-hmm. women have so many, like, similar experiences through history. And yeah. it's just, it's absolutely raging. Yeah, and you can kind of, like, the archetype of... Like the the seducer, the courtesan, and it's not obviously men are are all passive in this. Like they are the ones mm-hmm. being seduced. They are the ones who unwittingly give up the information. They aren't put to death by firing squad. No, no, it's all on her. They have no consequences. Yeah. So it's also like, and this is history. <laughs> history in a nutshell. Hmm. Her story. Yeah. This yeah. is what what happened to women then. Mm-hmm. And even if you. Like, if you go back, another super famous vilified woman is Anne Boleyn, who, you Mm -hmm. know, seduced the king, Henry VIII, we remember from our last, 
one of our previous episodes. Yes. So who seduced the king, made him divorce his wife, and then he chopped her head off because he wasn't happy anymore. Oh, so, like, wow. See, I don't, it, I, don't, I don't know that story, so. Oh, we'll have to do it. I mean, I, I've, heard, I've heard of her because of you, um, oh. mostly, but I never really read about it, so. Well, that's it, then. We have to do an episode on Anne Boleyn. I thought you were already planning on it, but yes. I wasn't, but I am now. <laughs> oh, really? I thought you. Oh, you. I thought you were. Wow. No. Okay. I thought she was. Well, I thought she was too famous. I thought everybody knew about her. Well, I know there's books, but there's books about a lot of things, my love. No, I know, but like, <laughs> no, but there's books like this. This book about her is very popular right now, and like it's mm -hmm. on Goodreads and stuff, and. I know you read mm -hmm. it. I know other people Which, that I know are very, reading very it. So I'm like, I know. It's called 500 Years of Lies yeah. by Haley Nolan. Definitely recommend. And it's not an academic read. So if you've never read an academic text, it's not written like that. It's written like a, a nonfiction, but it's written like you're talking to your best friend. So it's a really okay. good read. See, so we should, so anyway, we should plan out for that. Um, an episode on that because I'm interested in knowing more now. Then we'll do an episode before Amazing. the end of this season. Great. For sure. <laughs> all that to say, there are vilified mm -hmm. women all throughout of history. If you even scratch the surface of it, you will find an extensive list. And then if you dive in even deeper, that's yeah. where the rage yeah. comes out. So we are keeping it at a tolerable yeah, level exactly. of rage. We're just casual about it, but like... <laughs> <laughs> On that note... <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate you coming back week after week mm -hmm. and spending this time with us and if you want to know more about it if you have any questions comments or suggestions please feel free to dm us or like her stuff at the babble room on facebook and instagram as well and you can now rate us on spotify um yeah so just look for the babble room and find us guys Thank you so, so much for everything. And um, until then, see you next time. Bye. Bye.